welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we blew it. We did it. We went ahead and went full suck and ended up ensuring pretty much that we were going to get that number two overall pick. Uh, change is definitely in the air. Got some rumors to talk about, David. Lots of things. Going to talk about the nucleus of the team, what we think the nucleus is moving forward. And oh, dear God, Atlanta's on the horizon. <laughs> but first, and I will say that in the agenda specifically, <laughs> David left a note here. And, and, and David, would you like to tell the wonderful listeners what your note was? I mean, uh, maybe. Uh, so it was, I mean, you spelled but. But first, with two T's. Um, and so I saw, I mean, it's like right up there at the top. Um, there's not a whole lot going on uh, in, in the document before you get to this part. And uh, I just left a little comment. Uh, haha, but. That's it. Yeah, it's not, it's not that's an act, a, folks. That's where we're at. It's not an act. Right this is real life. Uh, <laughs> we, this team is driving us to drink and uh, basically find all manner of butt joke that we can to keep things interesting. And we always, with the last four weeks talking about being driven a drink, we always yeah. open up with what we're drinking. David, I, I want to hear about your drink situation right now because it seems very complicated. Let, t- tell the listeners what's happening right now in, in the mug to your right. I mean, it's a, uh, it's like a, it's a modified hot toddy, uh, a mod toddy, if you will. Um, oh, God. <laughs> it's, I mean, we're basically, we didn't have any lemons like or lemon juice or anything like that. So a we, hot moddy, a hot moddy. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay. I like that one better. Yep. Um, and so we basically replaced like the lemon juice element with tea. So we're trying it out. I don't know. Evan, uh, we're, we're still letting the, uh, the tea steep here. There's a heavy amount of bourbon, some hot water, some honey. Uh, you know, it's cold here. It's really, really goddamn cold here. Um, and so I just need something to warm my insides a little bit, you know? Yeah, well, let's talk about warming our insides um, and then, I guess, talk about eviscerating them after we split them open like a <laughs> lightsaber on the planet of, with, with a lightsaber on the planet of Hoth. Well, let's talk about, we're going to change up the, the script a little bit for this episode because I did think it was important to talk a bit about all the rumors that were coming out about whether Jedha was going to be in power, what the structure of the front office was going to be. And this discussion actually wraps up a couple of thoughts that we've had about what the nucleus of this team is and what does happen if a couple of different things change. So rather than starting with the rundown this week, we're going to get right into the game review and talk about our three biggest takeaways from the loss against the New York Jets. So, of course, if you watch the game, you know, I'm sorry, but we lost. <laughs> that's that's the reality. It happens. If you didn't watch the game, spoiler alert. It's, it's one of those things where it's it's you just... The first big takeaway I've got really is is what is Chip Kelly afraid of? This is one of those, this is the second week in a row now where he specifically said something along the lines of, you know, I just didn't think we could do it. In, in the snowy game, it was like, you know, I just didn't like the way the ball was coming out, and so I want to play a game, Blaine Gabbert. In this game, he specifically talks about the injuries, and he specifically talks about how he didn't, he was worried about what the offense could do. Has any other coach been so open about their fear in their lack of talent as Chip Kelly has over the last two or three weeks? Um, I think, you know, maybe maybe uh, uh, like Jay Gruden comes to mind, uh, I guess, in terms of, I guess, not having a high opinion, a high public opinion of his players um, is one. But like, yeah, I mean, Chip, it, and it's not even that he's necessarily like 
talking down a lot. I mean, he's just kind of being real with like, look, we don't really have that great of a talent, right? Like, uh, and I think it's on one hand kind of nice that, uh, that, that he's willing to do that, but uh, it is a little weird to hear. And I, and I think, yeah, especially when he comes to a, situ- a situation like this, right? Like th- there's really no downside to being overly aggressive in their situation, right? Like that's kind of my um, point, right? And that's, yeah. and that's why the question is, what are you afraid of? Exactly. Are you afraid you're going to lose? Okay, and <laughs> really good like at that. The, now. I just right. I just, that's the part I, that I don't understand because leading into the season, we both said like you know Chip Kelly has more of an aggressor's mindset. He's more willing to take chances, and he's more willing to buck the establishment that is this kind of stuffy, stodgy NFL that says, "Oh, you need time of possession to win games," and all this other crap that we don't think are necessarily true. And yet here he is kind of spewing the same stuff that you would think comes from a regular head coach, just being more honest about it. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we've seen some stuff like, I think in terms of fourth down decision-making, right. That's maybe been uh, a little bit more aggressive than the norm, but even, you know, even when he was in Philadelphia, this wasn't a situation. I think a lot of people, when he came in, um, you know, when in talking about ways, you know, he, he gets that kind of like, oh, he's going to revolutionize the game was always the the storyline with Chip Kelly when he was coming uh, into the NFL initially. Right. And that's why, like so many people, I think, are, di- are disappointed with what he's done in the NFL, even though he's largely been like pretty fine, you know, during his time in Philadelphia, I think. Uh, and, and so a lot of it comes back to, you know, he didn't he didn't revolutionize the game because that's what everybody talked about when he was first coming in. But a big part of that, more so than what he is doing offensively, I think was uh, people were expecting more in the decision-making category, right? He's going to be somebody that goes forward on fourth down, you know, way more than you see even from your, your normal, what like coaches that you would normally consider aggressive in, in NFL circles, or he's going to go for two point conversions way more than what we see teams typically do in the NFL. Like, those type of things haven't really been there. I, I think, you know, we've seen him. He's He fits, I think, in the more aggressive NFL coaches, uh, you know, going forward on fourth down and things like that. But uh, it's still not quite, uh, I think, where we kind of expected from him. And I think what would really suit this team? I mean, again, the, it's the what do you have to lose question. Like, there's no reason that you shouldn't be looking for some of these uh, you know, strategies that aren't, I guess, as well accepted in NFL circles to to try to get some sort of advantage for your team, right? Maybe it creates an extra possession because you buy an extra, uh, or you're able to extend that possession by going for it on fourth down, or you start uh, going for it on two, or going for two every time that you get in the end zone because you don't get in the end zone a lot. So maybe you want to try to maximize your points, right? So there, there's things like that that we haven't really seen, but I think the going conservative in the play calling and, and leaning maybe a little bit too much on the run game uh i don't know like uh, again on one hand maybe it's a little bit revisionist history because they were running the ball so well right like maybe that's kind of something well, there was one play there was one play specifically that jumps out and, and that's that fourth and two call of course in overtime yeah. that that was the play where you're like okay because you think about the two missed field goals and you're like well you know what that that's gonna happen it's we, we have a great kicker and yes but kickers will sometimes miss field goals and you know santa clara is that that stadium specifically is deceptively windy. Uh, th- there were kickers that, uh, and I think it was, um, I don't think, I forget exactly who it was that said it, but they were talking about how the wind patterns in Levi's were more aggressive than they were at Candlestick because of the open-ended end zone uh, on one side of the building. And so that created some pretty unique wind patterns and swirl patterns. But 
you, you've got a call now and it's fourth and two. You're in overtime and you've been running. the your, your offense has now at this point in the game stagnated and you run what is effectively your base running play. You, you run an inside zone, which is a play that you've got to think the New York Jets are ready for. And even though this is a New York Jets team that you've been running on successfully, they did tighten up. And this is still a very, very good run, uh, run defense. So what, what that to me, I think when I think of, of kind of conservative play calling, call anything, call anything other than that call. I mean, hell, I may have even taken a wide receiver screen at that point, right? Like, and, yeah, but and why, 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 why go to your base run play? I mean, I think the, the, the answer there, and again, whether this is the right answer or the correct answer for that situation, I think is, is certainly up for debate, but I think the the why you do it there right if you're trying to like put yourself in his position is well that's what we should do best right and the 49ers have been actually surprisingly good in those sort of situations on the season so um you know football outsiders keeps track of what they they call power success which is uh going to be how often an offense converts in short yard situations so third and uh fourth down and two or less and then also goal to go situations with two yards or less um, and so in those situations, the 49ers have converted 63% of the time, which is third in the NFL behind only the Jets and the, the Cowboys. So they have actually, when they've been in those situations previously, um, you know, been very good at, at converting. And I think that has to do um, with, you know, Carlos Hyde being able to, to usually be pretty good at breaking a couple of tackles and getting some yards after contact. Um, and, and so maybe you think that, okay, this is, while our, you know one of our base plays and something that they're probably expecting, this is the thing I have most faith that they can this team can go out and execute, right? Like this is the one thing I think they can go out and do at a reasonably high rate. And you know, even something as good as sixty three percent, right? That still means that you're failing in those situations thirty seven percent of the time. So nothing like that's going to be a sure thing. And, and so I think you can see an argument where this is, what they do best um, and they've been successful with going that route in the past. And so that's why you make the call. But uh, again, I think there's, there's obviously another argument there from the other side as well. And honestly, I think that the going forward on fourth down was probably the right call. Definitely. It, it, if, yeah. if only because you don't want to play for a tie like that, that I felt like maybe the play call wasn't aggressive, but I thought the, the decision to go for it was indeed appropriately aggressive because at this point, what happens if you lose, right? You, you, nothing much. You end up in great draft position. And it, but if you win, it's also great. If you're able to punch it in and score a touchdown, you're also doing great. So I think overall it was the right decision, if not the, the poor or a poor execution of said play. So let's talk about then the, the next takeaway because I don't know that, I don't know that we're going to be able to get into Chip Kelly's head and, and figure out why he is why he is acting the way that he is with his personnel and kind of almost passively aggressive mentioning it. And what's, what's weird about it is he doesn't do it passive aggressively, right? He doesn't do it like a backhanded compliment or derisively. He just kind of states the facts as they are. And no one really jumps on him because it's just kind of, I mean, everyone knows that's kind of what happened. The one this week was that, that I thought was kind of funny was he was asked about Aaron Lynch's comments about, you know, Lynch said something about how they're, they're one of the best teams in the league. They just can't finish or some, you know, crazy shit like that. Uh, I didn't see that. No. Yeah. And so uh, Chip was asked about it. Like, what do you think about those comments? And he's like, yeah, I'd, I'd agree that we can't finish, but like totally left <laughs> out. there. like, just, I'm not going to address That's... that other part, but yeah, we, we haven't finished well. This, this week, 
in Chip Kelly throwing shade. We forgot about that segment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, last week it didn't seem as appropriate with, uh, you know, everything that was going on with him on a personal level with his father passing away. So, uh, I mean, it's a, a good time to bring it back that we need something. Yeah. This week in Chip Kelly throwing shade. Uh, <laughs> he, again, lays it like it is. So let's talk, though, about really the the bright spot of the game. And if it weren't for, I think, some of the larger discussions we were going to have about the nucleus, then this person would be our spotlight player of the week, and that's Carlos Hyde. Carlos Hyde had a ridiculous game. At one point, he was averaging 20 yards per carry in the third quarter on like eight carries. It was a little ridiculous how good he looked in this game. And I think the thing that impressed me most about Carlos Hyde was that he looked he he looked healthy for the first time in a little bit. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, we throw that around a bit. And you're like, oh, he just doesn't look like himself. It doesn't look healthy. But he looked like he had a burst at the second level that I hadn't seen in quite a bit. Maybe it's because we haven't seen him in the open field a bit. Who knows? But he, there, there was one run specifically where he split. He, he bursted the line. And he's going. he literally runs through two defenders and splits the difference. And almost outruns them if one of those defenders wasn't a really fast safety. And he starts to pull away, and he's already in fifth gear. And just as a running back as a whole, it's just like, oh, my God, you are 230 pounds, and you can do that in the open field. That's stupid. Yeah, I mean, his final his final line, right, uh, 17 for 193. That's 11.4 yards per carry. Um, this was actually, so looking at, uh, at some of the DVOA splits, like by game this year, this was pretty clearly their best rushing performance. So they had a 77.8% rush DVOA in this game, um, which was again, their highest all season by a pretty solid margin. The, the, the closest one, uh, is against Miami when they had 44.2 and most of their success, like as far as DVOA is concerned. So, with DVOA uh, in the, the run offense split there, those include like quarterback runs as well. So even things like scrambles, anything that ultimately goes down as a run and the play-by-play gets included into those those numbers. And so they they had been ranking pretty high like in, in run offense DVOA all year, but that was mostly because of those quarterback runs that were uh, significantly more efficient than what they'd been getting from the, the running back position. Uh, and this was definitely an exception. I mean, this was pretty much, you know, all Carlos Hyde. There was, really wasn't much in the way, uh, you know, of of quarterback running this game. I mean, Kaepernick had three for 23 uh, along a 13. So, I mean, you know, certainly contributed a little bit there, but certainly uh, wasn't, you know, a, a game that he's been having uh, over the course of the year where he's getting like, you know, 60, 70 yards or more on the ground. So uh, this was a, a very efficient rushing performance from the 49ers, which is really kind of strange to say based on what's happened this year. And now, of course, the other takeaway is that this is a non-bad weather game where Colin Kaepernick has another kind of return-to-earth performance. So if you look at their, and I don't know what their variance is as an offense as a whole, um, David's probably going to look it up here in just a second, but it seems to be emblematic of a team that can't put it all together. It's it's kind of like in Friday, right? You ain't got two things in the house that match. Peanut butter, no jelly. Cereal, no (laughs) milk. When you do one thing good, you can't do another. And when you do the other thing good, you can't do the first thing good that you that you kind of relied on. When the passing game was there and the quarterback scrambling was there, you couldn't seem to run the ball, didn't have much of a defense. Now all of a sudden your defense decide, decides it's going to play a little bit and all of a sudden and your running back is playing out of his mind against 
still the sixth the sixth ranked defense based on DVOA after getting trampled by Carlos Hyde, the New York Jets. Um, so I mean they had a great ranking moving in, and all of a sudden your quarterback can't hit the broadside of a barn. So you know it, it's it's I think that's exactly what happens when you have a young non-talented team is they cannot play a full set of four quarters no matter how hard they're coached no matter their competition no matter their location they just can't put it all together yeah i i think uh you know what you said was exactly right in terms of and and this isn't even applied necessarily to the team as a whole right where when the offense is good the defense isn't good it's even when you break it down into those specific components of when the run offense is good, the pass offense isn't good, right? Or when the run defense isn't good, the pass defense isn't good. Like they, they, they can't even on one side of the ball seem to put it together for, for a kind of somewhat complete performance. I mean, this was really when you at least, you know, looking at some of the DVOA splits again, uh, it w- was probably the closest that they had to to being decent on on both sides of the ball. I mean, their their defense uh, DVOA was right around zero percent. So right about average. Uh, and then their offense was actually, and, and again, this is entirely because of the work uh, done by Carlos Hyde in the run game, but their offense was uh, above average at an 18.5%. So uh, this was is really as close to that as they've had all game. But of course, the pass offense was was really bad. And so I think it's interesting, um, you know, to look at, at Colin Kaepernick and, and what he's done the last couple of weeks, uh, which obviously hasn't been good. But comparing that to where we were at after the Miami game, right? I mean, Coming out of that game, it was this was, you know, among the the better regular season performances that he's had in his career is kind of what that that felt like, especially when you considered some of the extra context, right, in terms of how bad the team is around him and and the lack of uh, talent at skill positions like it was a a very impressive performance. But then you have the terrible game, uh, you know, in the bad weather against Chicago, and then you follow it up with uh, another poor game at home against the Jets. And, uh, you know, this was against a pass offense that hadn't been very good. And it's I think at this point, we kind of just have to accept that this is what Colin Kaepernick is, right? He's something somebody that is not a very good quarterback. Um, He's going to be pretty unpredictable from from game to game. You know, there are going to be weeks like Miami where he kind of puts it together and uh, can can look really good. But overall, isn't really going to be somebody that you can rely on. But I guess my question for you with that is, is, you know, knowing all of that and taking that into consideration, do you still think that he is the team's best option in 2017? Should, you know, something some some sort of change happen in the front office where he's convinced to to stick around if that's what the team wants to do? Like, do you think he is their best option or do you think it, it really is a situation where going from him to whoever they might be able to find? Uh, you know, either in the draft or free agency or whatever, isn't going to be a significant enough drop off to to make it worth keeping him for next year. I think it really all depends on the coach and the GM, because I think Colin Kaepernick at this point is a bridge quarterback. That's that's what he is at his best. And if you've got Chip Kelly here for another year, I would like to see Colin Kaepernick here for another year, irrespective of whether or not we draft someone else. But I mean, you look at some of the free agent quarterbacks that are available, at least from spot track. And I mean, Kirk Cousins is not going to see free agency. You've got Ryan Fitzpatrick, Case Keenum, Sean Hill, Matt Schaub, Matt McGloin, EJ Manuel, Blaine, I'm sorry, Glaine Babbert, 
Matt Castle, Mark Sanchez, Brian Hoyer, Geno Smith, Austin Davis. This is not a list of players that you want to be in any way, shape, or form considering someone who's going to play on your roster as a starter next year. So I don't know that any free agent quarterback is going to give you an upgrade over Colin Kaepernick. So, you know, I, I at least in Chip Kelly's system. Outside of Chip Kelly's system, I think maybe, you know, that coach will bring whomever is, you know, their 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 sage old guy, the guy that helps the young guy learn the playbook. You know, <laughs> you think of like a, a Matt Hasselback, you know, where he's like, you know that if he's playing, you're screwed either way. Like, let's be real. He's not there because he's a good backup quarterback. He's there because he's a good guy and he knows the offense he, and he can help your young guy learn. Yeah. Like that, that's the kind of backup quarterback I think it is makes a bit of sense. But outside of that, if we've got Chip Kelly, I do think Colin Kaepernick um, is more than likely the best option outside of someone like Jake Cutler, right? And, and even that, I'm not even sure that I want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> you yeah, know, I wouldn't, touch, I wouldn't touch that with a 6-foot Yorkie leash is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. There's, there's unfortunately not, not really a great answer, I think. I mean, it's uh, you know, a situation where you, you can't even come close to fixing all of these problems in a single offseason. Um, looking at, at what the options outside of Colin Kaepernick would be for a quarterback, I mean, you mentioned the free agency stuff, and free agency is generally never a good place to find a quarterback anyway. Um, so, so you kind of can scratch that trade off for Jimmy Garoppolo and uh, yeah, I mean, really, so that, that leaves your options down to making some sort of trade, which again, doesn't, doesn't happen very often that those sort of trades work out in your favor. Um, or, you know, going into the draft and this is, uh, you know, I, I certainly haven't started work in, in looking at a lot of these quarter, college quarterbacks that are going to be available potentially there. Um, and, and knowing whether, you know, any of them are worth it, but at least it seems right now, like, the kind of general consensus is that this isn't a very strong quarterback class. Um, and, and so you think, okay, well, if we can't get a guy at the top of the draft there, then then where are we going to go to find somebody that's going to, you know, be able to come in and play right away? And and I just don't know what that answer is. So uh, while I think that I, I kind of would like to move on from Colin Kaepernick at this point, like I, I, I just... I don't like going through that roller coaster of, you know, kind of wondering, you know, oh, he looks good a couple, you know, for for a week or two here. And then, you know, it goes back to looking just God awful like uh, th- there's too many problems. There. I'm just kind of I, I would rather have new problems, I guess, if it makes sense. Like, even though I know in a lot of ways that it's not going to be any better if they go a different direction, uh, at least for that first year, um, I, I I almost would just take some sort of new terrible uh, over what we've had to deal with, with, with him and Gabbert. Yeah. It, you're, you're kind of hashtag over it. And while I would, I would love to be over it. Um, I know that there's just not much better out there. Just can't um, quit him. No, no. <laughs> um, so to like really, really quickly. And I just kind of want your, your maybe one or two word answer on this, because it's something I think that's an interesting question that I was thinking about as we were talking about the, the devolution of the offense as the game goes on. Do you think that Chip Kelly becomes a worse play caller as the game wears on? No, I don't think there's a significant difference. I I, I think said two words. I I know. God, in general, I think people put too much emphasis on what happens in uh, specific situations, right? Like at the end of the game in particular, like uh, that they take those what is a small, small sample 
Um, and if you're great in those situations by chance, like everybody thinks you're you're some sort of fantastic football god that uh, can do no wrong. And if you suck in those situations, um, you know, it's the opposite there. So I, I don't think that there is a, a significant difference one way or another. I, I think that um, this is a bad football team and that eventually shows itself despite uh, some occasional good starts. Yeah, I, I while I think my logical brain tends to agree, there's something about my emotive brain that looks at some of the success of the plays early in games and some of the creativity. And I mean, you look at the the first pass to Quinton Patton against the Jets and you've got motion stretching the linebacker and the cornerback out wide making them think you're going to get a swing pass, which frees up, which allows cap to basically read one player and throw the quick slant. Um and and you don't see those types of things later in the game. You see more of the staples later in the game. Um, and again, it's anecdotal memory, right? Which sure. is dangerous because you're 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 not you're not looking at the chart. You're you're looking at things you remember. Yeah. Um, but but you know that that's and, and I know that when you're scripting your plays and you're setting out the the initial situational based plays that you're going to say, you can do that in the comfort of your own home and you can be analytical. You can say, no, I think this will work based on their tendencies. Once you're in the game, it's, it's completely different. So that's, I don't know, maybe we can tease that thought out a little bit later in, in another show, but I think that might be something worth looking at a little bit later. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the game in review. I mean, there's, there's only so many different ways we can present the, we suck parade to you. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit then about a lot of the rumors that have been surfacing in 49er land over the last week because there have been a lot. It's basically been a back and forth between sports writers and a lot of hypothesizing, a lot of quote unquote weasel words, which I thought was an interesting <laughs> an interesting set of statements from one Mr. Mike Florio, but this really all started because Jason LaConfora uh, he was on record at, for CBS Sports. He's a writer who said that the 49ers own, and I quote his story directly, the 49ers ownership. And remember, the technical owners are Denise and John uh, DeBartolo or York, depending on, I guess, Denise DeBartolo York or John York. Um, the ownership is open to significant changes. And he further goes to say that, quote, several owners believe Jed York's parents, Denise and John York, will be taking a more hands-on approach with the team. He also alludes to someone like a Mike Shanahan filling some kind of front office coach role. Well, then the roller coaster continues. You've got Mike Florio, who rebuts that story entirely, and he says, quote, According to a source with direct knowledge of the situation, none of these things will be happening. Jed York won't be leaving the football operation, his parents won't be replacing him, and the team won't be hiring Mike Shanahan in any capacity. Now, Florio and LaConfora don't like each other. They had a 2013 Twitter spat where they basically like went real hard at each other and, and said some really nasty things. But they're over there fighting in their corner. And then Mark Purdy goes on KNBR and he says, quote, Eddie DeBartolo left me with the distinct impression that there are going to be bold changes. So now you've got a second person saying that he's heard this from DeBartolo that there are going to be some bold changes in 49 land. Lock and Fora then kind of walks his story back and says, no, the Niners are just discussing different management structures. Jason Cole from Bleacher Report, who's probably best known for saying that Patrick Willis is going to come out of retirement, uh, 
He's best said, known for getting everything wrong related to the 49ers. <laughs> There's literally yeah, not a if, single thing that I think that has happened that he says with this team. But but continue. Well, well, he says that he asked Dr. Jork, Dr. York, <laughs> Dr. Uh, Jork. Let's go with that one. <laughs> Dr. Jork. Uh, he asked him flat out if this was true. And John York uh, flatly denied it. So, I mean, basically at this point, you're left with kind of remembering the two rules of 49er leagues, which is one, who's the source, right? You think of La Confora, who's he connected to? No one really. Um, you think of Mark Purdy, you know, he's obviously talking to DeBartolo, Mark Flor- Mike Florio, like it's just who's, who's talking about what? And then who the hell stands to gain? And at this point, the only people who really stand to gain are A, Mike Shanahan, because he's like, hey, look, people are talking about me again. Uh, and B, uh, I guess you could say the elder Yorks because they might be wanting to excite people about what's happened, that they're going to clean house. But that's about it. At this point, like there's so much shit happening and there's so much crap that it's really difficult to disambiguate what could be real uh, from what is more than likely bullshit. So so I got to go back to Jason Cole for just a second, because after you said Dr. Jork, I just started um, thinking of like how Jason Cole might have gotten this this like source, right? Like and, and gotten this quote. And I just imagine him instead of like actually talking to Dr. York, that he's got like a little hand puppet that's dressed up <laughs> like a doctor. He's got like a little white jacket on, you know, and he's like, what do you think, Dr. Jork? And he's just basically talking to himself, uh, and that's how he he generates these quotes. Because um, that would that make would his probably much make sense. his his reporting uh, a bit more sensical, <laughs> I would think. Um, but 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 anyway, um, back. I mean, it's it's really hard to know what to make of this stuff. I mean, it, you know, we went through what felt like all of the same sort of thing with the Harbaugh situation, right? Where it was just like these kind of constant back and forth things. Um, well, that's why you want to give credence to the leaks, right? Because leaks yeah. seem to be true, right? And and obviously, it depends who you're getting them from, right? And so that's why I think, you know, with, with Locke and Fora, I, I certainly don't um, take what he said. Like, it's a situation where if it's like, if it's Schefter or Glazer, like, those dudes don't report things until, like, they are happening, right? Like, you just don't see things that they report end up being wrong ever really if uh you know if it happens it's it's a certainly a rare thing um and and so when you have somebody like this like that's that's coming out and saying this stuff like i I just don't know i want it to be true i with like all of my being i want the the uh idea of jed york like completely removing himself from football operations or being removed by his parents whatever um and, and kind of hiring somebody hopefully not Mike Shanahan to oversee the entire football operation. Like obviously all of that sounds great considering what, what we've had to go through um, with the, the, the Jed York Trent Balky situation here in the last few years. So uh, that would be fantastic. But I, I mean, at this point I just don't know what to make of it. And, and part of it's, I guess probably just kind of sh- emotionally shielding myself and not wanting to uh, really put too much stock into this and, and believe that it's true until something ac- actually happens. So I think if I'm going to parse some words, I I do think that there's something to there's something to Lock and Fora's report. He probably did hear something about the the team being open to changes. He he did to his credit use a lot of qualifiers like could and would and maybe 
in his report. And so I think, you know, Florio kind of has a point. And he said in his in his rebuttal article, he said uh, when he categorically said none of these changes were going to happen, he specifically called out that you shouldn't use any words like might or would or could. And he calls them weasel words. So I do think there's something to that in that, you know, he's categorically saying this won't happen. Um, but I do think that there is probably an undercurrent somewhere in Santa Clara maybe clamoring slash hoping for something like this. So if we were to then take the likely outcomes, if we were to kind of stack rank what some of these possible scenarios are, let's take a look at what they could be. Tim Kawakami, who I think when it comes to bullshit coming out of 4949 Centennial, is basically gospel. Yeah. Like he he has the decoder ring to the bullshit that gets spewed from the 49ers headquarters. This guy knows what he's talking about. He is, yes, I know, he can be a total and absolute, like just complete dickhead on Twitter. I get it. I understand it. But the content of what he's saying actually makes perfect sense. And he's been right, like basically since the rumors about Harbaugh started. Yeah, I mean, once he actually decides to like stop entertaining Twitter trolls and like say things of substance, which, you know, he does a, a good amount, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, generally what he's saying is right on. Like I, I got into a conversation about uh, this sort of thing with somebody the other day about like talking about cones. And I'm like, why do you even like why do you even bother with the cones? Right. Like there's there's nothing no. to be gained there. Like at least with Kawakami, you put up with some Twitter bullshit, but you eventually get like good quality uh, reporting on this team and like what what their likely thought process is and on a lot of the stuff and I think um, yeah I mean his his thought process too like getting into some of that article seemed to be that and I think this makes a lot of sense that uh, you know the the Yorks just are going to kind of look out for themselves and it seems unlikely that that any scenario that ends with Jed not being involved you know in a manner that he is right now is uh, seems to be unlikely but yeah, let's let's go through, you know, those those uh, I think he only what four scenarios and, and kind of. Yeah, he he ranks them and, and we'll go in. Let's go in reverse order. So let's start with okay. the fourth likeliest outcome first. York's fire everyone. Yeah, I, everyone's yeah, gone. Um, and then basically so his idea there is that they go all in on uh, somebody that's going to kind of uh, a coach that's going to run the whole thing. Right. Kind of like they did with. Uh, Mike Nolan, where they have a big name guy, you know, that I think one of the examples that he uses here is like John Gruden um, was was yeah. one of his uh, potential candidates there. Um, but somebody like that, that's going to to come in, uh, bring a lot of experience and that's going to kind of command a lot of power uh, in the personnel department and is basically going to, to run the show there. Um, I tend to agree that this is the least likely i i just don't see a way that this happens considering what we know about yeah. the orcs and, and this team agree to agree so let's move to the third likeliest outcome and that is that denise de bartola york moves young balding jed aside and hires a football overseer who picks the general manager the coach and everything else and jed is basically sent to his room to play with his toys uh on a perpetual play date with parag marate uh, and they can go make billions of dollars together. So I I do think that this is probably the third likeliest outcome, um, mostly because football structure-wise, like, 
it, it, it would be, it would take a lot of courage from Denise DeBartolo and John's arena to say we effed up with putting our son in charge of everything, so let's move him out. And they haven't done anything that warrants us giving them the credit to make that good of a decision. Because I do think that while this is the, the third least likely outcome, um, that it's also the best outcome. Absolutely the best outcome. Yeah. Like that that's the one that 49ers fans want. Yes. What they want is someone like, you know, whether it be Mike Shanahan or Bill Polian or whomever to come in and say, look, I know football and I know the business of football. And I'm going to and, and my stead is to make this football team a successful operation. And I'm going to hire a GM that can do it. And I'm going to hire a coach that can do it. And I'm the adult in the room. Because this is one thing that 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 uh, I think it was uh, Mark Purdy said in his KBR interview. And I agree. And I think this is the the simplest and most crystallized distillation of what happened with Harbaugh, Jed and Trent Baalke. There was no adult in the room. When those three asshats were arguing, there was no there was no one to say, "Look, you're being like you're acting like an idiot. You're a fool, and you stop stomping on your headphones." Like, just like let's all take a moment, cool off, call it a day. There was no Carmen policy to say, "No, Eddie, you can't fire Bill." You know, yeah. like that. And I think that's exactly what happened. And so that's the outcome that we all want, but it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. So, David, what's what does TK say is the second likeliest outcome? So this one would be firing the GM, but looking uh, to an outside candidate. So not basically not promoting Tom Gamble um, and, and and having him take Balky's place. So you make a change there. You allow that new GM, whoever it's going to be, to kind of uh, make a decision as to what they want to do um, with Kelly. And and you know I don't know depending on. Your perspective there, I, I think that likely ends with Kelly not being around. Um, it maybe gets a year or something like that. But typically, when you bring in somebody from the outside like that, uh, they, they want to hire their own guy. You know, they want to make that sort of decision themselves. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that this is, you know, it makes more sense that uh, they would do this than than completely remove Jed from, you know, kind of the football side of things and, and making those sort of decisions. Um, but again, not, not as likely doesn't still quite fit the mold of what that we've seen from them in, in the decision-making process before. And the, the likeliest outcome that Jed fires bulky, um, and then hires a GM that the Yorks believe can win with Kelly. And I'm pretty sure that search begins and ends with Tom Gamble. Yeah. What we, we've got a question from a Twitter user. Cause I, I've been talking about the whole Gamble thing for, for a couple days now. And, they asked, you know, why why is it that Tom Gamble is assured to be able to work with Kelly? Um, and it's because they're friends and they have a relationship that predates their uh, their time here in San Francisco. When you look to what happened in Philadelphia, it was the fact that that Chip Kelly had a, a, a friendship with Tom Gamble that helped lure Tom Gamble to Philadelphia but also uh, allowed Chip Kelly to kind of gain some of that personnel power because he had someone in the personnel department that could do a lot of that work. So they, they were a team that worked together in Philadelphia. And while I think at this juncture, it would be Gamble that had the personnel power, they have an established relationship. They can work together. Um, in the opening press conference, Chip Kelly was calling him Tommy, right? Tommy Gamble, Tommy Gamble. Um, so they know each other. They're friends. They have a relationship. 
and and that's the most likely outcome. Yeah, and he, you know, I don't know if he was instrumental necessarily in in getting Kelly here, but I think he certainly played a a, a fairly large role in Kelly ultimately coming to, uh, you know, San Francisco in the first place. I mean, that that connection certainly was helpful. Um, and yeah, I think that this, you know, again, based on what we know about the Yorks and what their decision making tends to look like, um, they prefer to promote within um, and and kind of go with uh, a safer route, I guess, in their minds and not really shake things up a whole lot. And uh, yeah, I think that's kind of what we see. I don't think they want to end up in a scenario where they're paying two coaches that aren't actually coaching on the team. Um, which it w- would be the case because they're still having to pay Tom Sula for, I believe, two more years after this. Um, yep. So you fire Kelly, and now all of a sudden you're paying th- effectively three head coaching salaries. That's just... You're on that University of Texas plan. <laughs> yeah, it's just not something that uh, would really fit their MO. So as great as it would be, again, for that, uh, what we had is, or what TK had is the, the third likeliest outcome, like, um, I... I, I just don't know that like there's there's a greater than zero chance that it happens you know that maybe they uh become aware of just their complete ineptability to to run this team successfully like i I don't know um you know i guess anything's possible but uh it it just doesn't seem very likely And, and so i think the question then becomes with that most likely outcome is what do you think about tom like how do you feel about that outcome right if we we agree that it's the most likely and that that's probably what we're going to see um happen sometime shortly after the season like how do you it, it's hard to know a lot about these gm candidates right like it, we from the outside it, it's really not something that um we can get a a really good grip on but I, I guess what are your initial impressions about that potential pairing going forward look i don't hate that option I really don't. Um, I I would probably put that option second behind the, the kind of clean house and bring in a true football person. Yeah. Because in my eyes, I do like Chip Kelly. I do think he brings a lot to the table. I am willing to sacrifice Chip Kelly to the football gods. If you bring someone who is going to bring stability to the franchise from a football perspective. But if you're not going to get that, then I would like to give Chip Kelly another year. I would like to see uh, Colin Kaepernick here because maybe this is the eternal optimist in me, but I do see the kind of the beginnings of a core nucleus at this franchise. And while there's still a lot of question marks to, to be had about, you know, how these players are going to develop and whether or not they're actually going to be good. I do think if you, you know, the, the one thing that Trent Balky does not do well is pick players on draft day. Like that's, he does everything else right. He values players correctly. He makes trades correctly. He just can't seem to pull the trigger on the right people. He doesn't care about wide receivers, and he doesn't care about quarterbacks. And this is not 1982, and so he can't play football that way. And so <laughs> when you think about then, you know, kind of moving forward, one of, the, one of the great questions I think that we had that we were talking about is what is the nucleus? What is the nucleus of this 49ers team? Because if you're the GM, whomever that may be, whether it be a new football czar, whether it be a, uh, a Tom Gamble, which players do you keep? Right? What, what does this core look like? And, and I think this is where we get to our first spotlight player, and that's going to be Jaquaski Tart. He's now been a starter for three games. And in those three games, you know, now we have a good enough sample to say, look, what's he like? Because before he was kind of being used, misused, applied, misapplied. But 
Now he's got three games as a starter. Um, and and David, what what's he looked like so far as the initial piece of this nucleus? I think at least through these these three games, right? Because obviously we've seen a little bit of him, um, you know, in in a situational role earlier in the season, and then he spent a, a decent chunk of the season last year as a starter, right? Once uh, Antoine Bethea went down with an injury, so it, it's certainly not our first exposure to him in, in a significant role, but. You know, considering that this is a different defense and and that he's still a younger developing player, you know, I definitely thought that it made sense to to kind of take the temperature on him after these three games and and get a feel for it. And I, I think it's been kind of up and down. I think there are some areas where you you can certainly see improvement, and I, and I think that really kind of starts um, with his ability as a run defender, and then also with just as kind of related to that as a, as a tackler, right? Like one of his big problems during his rookie season was. Um, you know, he kind of tended to be a little reckless, right? He was flying around uh, places and, and didn't really come to the ball carrier under control and, and ready to make tackles. And, and therefore, he ended up missing quite a few. I mean, he had, uh, I believe, four games uh, during his rookie season with three missed tackles. And so far this year, uh, he only has four total missed tackles. And, and he hasn't had a single one since he took over as a starter. So I think that's a, a very clear area of improvement that we've seen um, from him in the in these three games. The, the coverage is still a little inconsistent, right? I think we saw um, maybe his best game during that stretch this last week against the Jets. I mean, he was, uh, I think, generally in very good position. Um, he should have had an interception, uh, you know, that, over the middle there that... Uh, How he didn't have that interception is still stupid. Quincy Inunua is... doesn't make sense. Quincy Inunua is the actual number two wide receiver that team should pay instead of the number two wide receiver on the best passing offense in football. Yeah, I mean, it was just uh, a, a stupid play. It really was like he, he's looking like he should have had it. It went right through his hands. And then not only did it not like deflect off of him and fall incomplete or something like that, like it somehow made its way through uh, and, and and he was able to grab it. So, yeah, I mean, should have had an interception there. But I think generally was, uh, again, in, in pretty good position. Um, you know, with safeties, it can be tough in some games just because they don't get a lot of action plays right where they're kind of directly involved in the play it's not like a defensive lineman where when you're watching somebody like DeForest Buckner and trying to see what what he's up to right like every play he's involved in some capacity and that's just not always the case with safeties but um yeah I thought this was good but but again still inconsistent there so far uh or over those three three starts uh he's allowing just under a yard per cover snap so 0.89 yards per cover snap uh, over those three starts, which ranks 45th out of 56 qualifying safeties. And and that's, again, just in those three weeks, not uh, over the, the entire season. So it's been up and down. He's still going to give up some stuff in coverage. And I don't know that that was ever going to be his his strongest area, right? He was always, like when we were talking about him before draft uh, and, and even, you know, throughout his rookie year and before this season, it was as a player. He was Buchanan. Yeah, he's, he can kind of do a little bit of everything, right? Like he can... Uh, he's not a complete liability in coverage to where that's just like this this massive, uh, you know, target spot for for offenses that they're going to look to take advantage of. Um, but he's he's not great there. He's, his value is really more playing a little closer to the box, um, you know, being somebody that can uh, be kind of an enforcer type over the middle of the field, get involved in the run game, um, you know, hopefully make some plays. I mean, we've seen some flashes uh, of some playmaking ability there, but just it kind of like Jimmy Ward, right? It just hasn't been there for him early on. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll see if he continues to develop. But I think he, definitely during this three game stretch, 
Uh, I like what I see out of him more than what I saw last year during his, his time as a starter. The three other players I think that consist of the 49ers offensive nucleus is going to be one Carlos Hyde. I think he is probably the 49ers best offensive player by about a mile. Um, he ranks third in defensive yards or in, in uh, I'm sorry, uh, yards above replacement. And that's going to be the, the metric basically that says how better you are than your replacement. Uh, and the only players that are better than him are Ezekiel Elliott and Shady McCoy. Um, and so, and these are, this is defense adjusted, which is why games against teams like the New York Jets are really going to help him out. But even then, you look at his yards after contact. Uh, he's got over three yards after contact, which trails only Jay Ajayi. And he's missed two games, and he's still only 121 yards away from breaking 1,000. So uh, he is a bell cow. He is a player that can be the star running back. If anyone comes at me with Leonard Fournette, like this offseason, like, oh, we should drive Leonard Fournette. I'm just going to go ahead and give them a gif of Carlos Hyde trucking some defender or scoring a touchdown or making yards where there were none because, you know, no one was able to run block correctly. Um, so you've got Carlos Hyde. You've got, I know this is going to be controversial, but Vance McDonald, he just signed a five-year deal. It's really a three-year deal uh, with only about $7 million guaranteed. So again, we, we do shit on Balky a lot, and I still think he should probably be fired, but this is a deal that looks good on paper for a player, but is really a three-year deal with $7 million guaranteed and the rest of it in not likely to be guaranteed incentives and uh, roster bonuses. So it's a well-constructed roster for a player that finally got his drop rate down to 8%. Down to eight so, percent. So that's that's the thing that we gotta we gotta talk about, right? So with Vance McDonald, and a lot of people are pointing to the the improvement in drop rate is like a sign that he's kind of like on the rise, right? And you have to put that drop rate in context. Yes, he has improved, but we're talking about going from one of the, if not the worst drop rate among tight ends in football. Um, I mean, it was really, like sixteen percent, dude. It was sixteen percent. Yeah, I mean, really, we're talking about all pass catchers at that point, like one of the worst rates that you're going to see league wide to something that just sucks. Like it's not good still like that still ranks very low. Like it's in the bottom third among tight ends, I believe. Um, and, and, and so it's not good. It's not like he suddenly developed these great hands, right? Like he, he just kind of, and again, whenever you put up, uh, you know, really in most stats, right, a drop rate like the one that he had that was that was so terrible, it's unlikely that he's going to continue to be that bad, right? Uh, and so I think you can chalk up a Famous little bit last of it. words. It, it, it's it, you can chalk up a little bit of it to that. Um, and then, yeah, I'm sure there's a little bit of improvement on his end that, uh, you know, he's kind of, I'm sure he's, it's been something that he's worked on, but he's still not a good player like uh, a lot of people are pointing to him as, a, as some sort of bright spot in this offense because he's been you know he's made a few big plays and it's like just because you're the best of a bunch of terrible players like on this offense doesn't make you good doesn't make you worth a five-year or even if it's really a three-year extension right this is um somebody that is giving you production that you can find readily available on the streets like you don't need to give him any sort of guaranteed money for what he's done. There is nothing that suggests that he deserves that contract. And if you believe that, you know, he, you want to keep him around, you think he might be on the upswing a little bit. 
that is still a very generous offer. Like if he would have hit the open market, I guarantee he would have not received an offer that was better than that. He simply doesn't have the production, doesn't have the track record to suggest that he's worth that kind of money. Um, and, and so I thought that, yeah, I mean, it was a, I thought it was a really poor deal. I was, I was really kind of surprised by the the whole thing. Um, I was surprised by the overall dollars because 35 million sure sounds like a lot. And, and even if you look at three year, 19 million, it sounds like a lot, but when over a million dollars per year is tied up in roster bonuses and workout bonuses. Um, and when really you're looking at what is uh, effectively a contract that can be terminated, it's certainly the last two years of team options. But you can get out of this contract after two years without much salary cap hit. And you're looking at a team that probably has enough enough salary cap space to probably put together the starting rosters for two, like eight and eight NFL teams. You're probably looking at a team that's like, you know what? We got to get up to our spending limit at some point. We've got to spend a little bit of money. Might as well spend it on uh, the only they're, unfortunate bright they're spot. They're so far ahead of the spending limit. Like, uh, I had that that argument come to me like quite a few times, like in Twitter when I mentioned so, so something like future GM is pissed about this fucking deal um, because it, it's they're well above that. Like, that's not a concern that they they don't need to spend money to hit that limit or they're going to be in some sort of danger. Do they have a ton of cap space? Absolutely. Is this going to negatively affect them in a long-term capacity in almost any way? Almost certainly not. But is it a good deal to give? No. Like, it's still a, yeah, it's well, still a poor deal. Like, it's still a bad player that hasn't really shown anything. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, he unfortunately, because of that contract, kind of uh, leaves himself in the status of being sort of some sort of building block. But I don't know that Vance McDonald is a key contributor on the next good 49ers team to me he's effectively eric johnson right like we talked about eric johnson last week where at like at peak eric johnson we had one good season where he had 82 yard or 82 receptions for just shy of a thousand yards at that point like uh, i think on a the, bad the new... team though right so like that's yeah that's, on a very that's bad what i mean team. like he sure might be able to be some sort of bright spot on a terrible team but he is not a good enough player to be a contributor on a good offense. I don't know that we're saying that really most of these players are. We're saying what's the nucleus moving forward. Right. right? So we're my argument that... would be he's not a nu- he's not uh, he's not a part of that nucleus. He should not be somebody that is kept around to be on the next like that. To me, the building the nucleus right and choosing these players is who are the guys that are still around? Like like who are the. Um, you know, maybe not quite to this level, but when you look at the bad teams right before Harbaugh took over, right, there were still a lot of components from those teams that ended up being core players on the good Harbaugh teams, you know, guys like Gore and Willis and Justin Smith and all those. And so maybe these guys don't hit that level, but they are the players that were on the bad team that are still around when we have the good team. And so where do you put, so where would you put then Josh Garnett? Cause he's a player who I think is been inconsistent all year. He's a player that I think most people would consider part of the nucleus. He's a player that, honestly, I don't know has really played better consistently than, than Tiller, right? And, and so I, if, if you're talking about that, that definition, then I would say you take someone like Josh Garnett out of the core, out of the nucleus of players, and you put in someone like Tiller, and, and you call it a day, or maybe you, you know put both of them in because of Josh Garnett's draft status, but... I wouldn't say so far that Josh Garnett has outplayed 
the that tiller last year or even tiller this year to be quite frank yeah i i don't um i don't think that i would either i think the the argument if you're making one to keep josh garnett like beyond and i'm not even talking draft status even though like that plays a role whether whether it's right or wrong right that that sort of draft status when you're a first round pick does play a role in, in into how many chances you get on a football team um is sort Hashtag of marcus martin yeah sort of the reality of it um but even outside of that i think um why you would go with garnett is he's a much younger player right so uh tiller bounced around a little bit before he ended up where he's at with the 49ers i mean i think he's uh, he turned 26 this year, so he'd be 27 going into, you know, whoever, what, whatever's going on next year. Whereas uh, I think Garnett's like four or five years younger than him. So you, you can make a, a, I think, a decent argument there that, yes, while currently there's uh, probably very little separation between the performance of the two players, um, there is is likely more room for growth with a player like Garnett. Um, I, I do agree with the, the the sentiment, though, that he might not be necessarily uh, a kind of a, a nucleus player a building block player like i think you hope that he is um because of what what was invested in him but you know even uh, it, when it came to the draft like i don't think either of us were super excited about him you know it was kind of like yeah well, there's... we were in a run blocking sense right because yeah. what what we saw was a punishing run blocker that had some clear misses in pass pro and and the the hope right the projection was if he can take this run blocking to the next level and he can layer on to that some some pass blocking skills you've got a damn good offensive lineman yeah. um and and so far i think what i've seen anyway is that he has improved a little bit but he's still not all that great and i think when you look at opportunity when you look at opportunity costs that's how i look at this i look at who is not starting and who is not playing because he is starting and to me that's zane Beatles for i don't know why and and you know and and then you've got garnet and you've got tiller right so it's like at this point like i don't know that i would that i would sacrifice if i've only got one right guard to play i don't know that that right guard is is garnet i would i would probably say it's tiller if i've got two guards i'm probably playing both of them yeah, I mean, I think going down that argument path leads to Zane Beatles on the bench, right? Which I which I totally agree with. I, I think that um, those are the players that you should be looking at, right? Tiller is still young enough that you can hope that he he develops into something. Um, certainly more than Beatles, who pretty much you know is what he is at this point. I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with that sentiment, but I don't think that Garnett is the guy that goes to the bench because of it. I, I think that you still have to give him an opportunity. Um, because again, he's, he is very young and, and, uh, you know, he was, I think a talented player though. He, he certainly needed, uh, to add some polish to his game, but yeah, I, I think offensively there's not a lot, right? Like I, I think Carlos Hyde is, is one that we can all agree on for sure. Um, and beyond that, it gets pretty shaky. Like, I don't think there's many clear cut guys. I think you have, uh, you know, a couple of guys like the ones we mentioned that, uh, could be there, but um the sad thing again not a single receiver mentioned like i i, I no. you know there's well, that's, there's and that's, nothing I mean, that's there Parker. right that's uh, it, which so, is unfortunate so talk to me a bit then about the defense because if that's the offense the defense seems a little bit brighter and and there's three players that we've identified i think that that are more than likely going to be these these nucleus players and of course you, you kick everything off with deforest buckner deforest buckner was a player that we both wanted the 49ers to draft we thought he could make an impact this year 
that you know you need impact players, you need players that are going to disrupt something. Has DeForest Buckner filled that disruptive player role this year for the 49ers? I don't think he's been as disruptive. Like to me, right? Um, when, when you when you talk about disruptive, it's it's is he creating a lot of negative plays, right, for the offense? And uh, whether that's in the form of sacks, tackles for loss, you know, force fumbles, you know, things things like that. In these these kind of bigger impact plays are usually what I think of when when you mention disruptive. And I don't think we've quite seen that. I mean, he's he certainly hasn't been horrible in that respect. I mean, he's up to uh, I believe five sacks right now and. Uh, what did we set the, I remember w- during the preseason, we talked about an over under for his sack total. I remember taking the over and I think it was like six. I think we said like six, or, six seven. or seven, right in that range. Oh, I've got to go look. Hold um, on. You keep talking. I'll go look. So yeah, it was, it was right in that, that ballpark. And so I think, you know, he, he is, you know, if he can get another sack or two over these last three games, which certainly isn't unreasonable. Um, I mean, he should have a chance at the very least against the Rams. Uh, and actually, even, you know, again, Seattle is that final game there and their offensive line has been uh, terrible as usual. So he, he's got some opportunity there to, uh, you know, pick up another couple of sacks before the season's over. And, and that would get him over that total that we kind of had as an expectation going into the season. So there has been some there, but but he hasn't, I don't think, quite created the negative plays that that you would hope. And I don't think that is necessarily, uh, you know, a huge uh, con for him as a player going forward, right? Like, I think when you're looking at those high rookies, you kind of expect them to have some up and down, uh, ups and downs, like in that rookie season, right? You hope that things work out great from the beginning. You know, somebody like Joey Bosa, right? As soon as he got out there and, and got the contract situation resolved and was healthy and all of that, stepped on the field and he's been fantastic um, pretty much from, from the first snap, right? So you hope that it works out like that way and that's always great, but you kind of the expectation what happens more often than not is that they're going to have uh, kind of some mixed results in that first year. And so I think that's what we've seen from him. But there's certainly a lot of positives. I mean, he's played uh, more snaps than any defensive lineman, um, I think, in the league at this point. If not in the league, it's uh, he's up there two or three. But he has uh, almost twice as many snaps as any other 49ers defensive lineman at this point. And, and I think there's something to be said in, in that realm of, health being a skill and, and being able to stay on the field and um, offer, you know, that sort of production play in play out for your team. So I, I think he seems to be that type of player. That was what he was in college. Uh, and, and so you kind of expect that going forward. And then, you, you know, you think that there are going to be some things that he gets cleaned up. He still needs to work on uh, being able to handle double teams in the run game. That's still been a big problem for him this year uh, as it was in college. And, and Eric Armstead is right in that same boat, I think. So you, you hope that they continue to improve. You hope the negative plays uh, see a little bit of an uptick as we go forward. But I, I think he uh, is almost certainly been the best 49ers defender uh, th- this season. When you look at the, kind of the entire body of work there. And uh, I think will very clearly be somebody that is on the next good 49ers defense. And I think that's, that's probably it for me is at the point at which he is the best defender on the team, even if he's not as disruptive as we would have hoped that he would be or would have been, I think that's a clear win, yeah. at least initially, as a pick from Trent Baalke. Like, Absolutely. I don't know that you can put this one in, you know, the the category of, oh, that pick sucked kind of picks, which, honestly, for Baalke at this point, is a win. <laughs> and the, the other two players are going to be secondary players. That's going to be Jimmy Ward, who had a great game against the Jets, and unexpected Richard Robinson, which, remember in the draft kind of aftermath, 
Someone said that when we drafted Richard Robinson in the fourth round, cheers came out of the 49ers draft room. Someone on Twitter will have to help confirm that for me, but I'm pretty sure I remember that as a story after draft. And honestly, we thought the dude needed to eat a cheeseburger because he <laughs> weighed like 110 pounds coming out of LSU. Yeah. But these two players are the two best cornerbacks on the team. And Jimmy Ward is, again, someone who has finally battled back the perceptions that he's had since that first Brandon Marshall game. And in this Brandon Marshall revenge game, he did get the better of, you know, I guess Brandon Marshall. Brandon Marshall didn't do a whole hell of a lot. And uh, Jimmy Ward had both an interception and a sack and a couple of defense passes. I mean, he had a really, really good game against the New York Jets. And you've got Rashard Robinson, who at this point is in no way, shape or form a lockdown corner. But he is someone who's able to use his frame, who's someone who does not get beat cleanly often and has defended a good number of passes and is, I think, our second best cornerback. So I think both of those corners are on the nucleus of the team uh, for the defense, at least moving forward. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, and, and one name that we forgot in there is Eric Armstead, of course, because he hasn't. Uh, you know, been in, in, in the lineup with his injury. Um, but I, I think you have basically two guys on each level, right, that you can kind of potentially build around there. You have your your uh, Buckner-Armstead pairing up front. You have two corners in Jimmy Ward and Rashard Robinson who can be, I, I think, solid players in this league. And, and I think the thing that I'm looking at, right, with, with this group that uh, I kind of get the same impression from all of them is, I don't know. I mean, Buckner, I'm still, uh, you know, optimistic that he can develop into like a, a a star in this league, like a legitimately very good, potentially all pro caliber player. Like, I, I don't think that based on what we've seen from him this year that we can, uh, you know, eliminate that that scenario. So uh, I think that could still be in the cards for him. But most of the players that I think that we're looking at right now aren't your star players. Right. What, what the 49ers really desperately need are those three or four guys that are that are really true difference makers, right? Um, somebody that, that can be a pass rusher, right? Like if, if you look at teams, uh, the AFC West seems to be loaded with them, right? You have your guys like Von Miller and Khalil Mack and Justin Houston and uh, D Ford and all of those guys that they have in that division. And, and it's uh, you get in these situations where, okay, it's third and long defense needs to come up with a big stop here. And, and it just seems inevitable that, those pass rushers are going to be able to come through and get a big play. Right. And it seems to happen more often than not. The 49ers need those sort of uh, star caliber players. And I think if the, if you can find those guys, which obviously is not an easy thing to do, but if, if you can get some of those guys in place, then all of a sudden these other guys right now that we want to kind of be these core contributors start to look a little bit better because I don't think any of them are, are really good enough to carry that sort of load. But if all of a sudden they're kind of the second, third, fourth option on your offense, on your defense, things are looking a lot better at that point. And that was really what we lost, right? All of the the main casualties that we had when all the retirements happened and, uh, you know, all of the players that they've lost over the last couple of off seasons, it's the guys at the top, right, that, that they kind of lost there and haven't been able to replace. And so if you can somehow find a way to get some of those guys and it's going to take a while, right? It's you're going to have to find a quarterback. You're going to have to find a pass rusher. You're going to have to find a, a receiver that can be a playmaker. Like these things aren't going to happen in one off season, but if you can manage to, to get those guys in place, I think all of these guys that we talked about look a lot better suddenly. 
All right, so I'm going to give you three players, and you give me a quick yes or no as to whether or not they are part of the nucleus moving forward. Number one, Eric Reed. No. Number two, Aaron Lynch. No. Number three, Trent Brown. No. I was surprised about Aaron Lynch. I thought you were going to go yes with him. Aaron Lynch, he's, maybe. He's, he's, he just seems to be... Uh, one of those guys that just isn't going to be able to quite put everything together. You know, there, there always seems to be something with him. So let's then get to the game preview, which is going to go pretty quick because it's, well, it's the Falcons. This is a (laughs) game that, and the Falcons are just good on offense. That's what they do. I mean, the the first question really I have for the Falcons and and previewing the game is whether or not Atlanta is going to throw up 50 on the 49ers. Yes, because this is a team. This is a team, Atlanta. They're the only team in the NFL to average 30 points per game and for and 400 yards plus uh, yards per game this season. San Francisco is the only team to allow 30 or more points per game and 400 plus yards per game uh, this season. So you've got a recipe for offensive mayhem is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, I mean, this is this is a team that is probably going to break their single-season scoring record against us. Oh, yeah. All they, needed, all they need is 14 points. Done. Lock and, it up. And uh, do, do you know the team that has the single-season scoring record for Atlanta? Oh, for Atlanta? It's the Dirty Bird year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's the Jamal Anderson. They went to the Super Bowl because Garrison Hurst broke his goddamn leg in the NFC championship game in that stupid piece of crap they call a dome yeah uh wait. 98 season didn't wait who did you say garrison hurst wasn't that yeah. bryant young nah dude 98 right when did bryant, bryant young broke his leg in atlanta uh that may have happened but it wasn't in the NFC championship game that was steve young's last playoff game in 98 they made it all the way to atlanta and on like the third play of the game, Garrison Hurst breaks his leg. And we had like the number one rushing offense that year. And all of a sudden, everything fell apart. The Falcons go to the Super Bowl and getting destroyed. And then Steve Young comes back at 99 and gets knocked out by Anise Williams. That's, that's, that's the tear that my heart is literally hinging on right now. That's the last time outside of 2003 that we were like, or, and, and of course the Harbaugh years that we were really, really good. Um, as I look at the Steve Young jersey uh, that is behind me, I on really need to know when when Brian Young. When Brian I was Young trying to like, did it. I'm, I'm like keep the audience here involved, desperately trying to to search here. I think we may have found. Yeah, it was definitely 1998. Yeah, but I, it wasn't in the playoffs, and it wasn't in that. Dude, it, it may have been in that game against Atlanta. I think I'm almost positive. So two it was. broken legs in that game against Atlanta. Are you sure that Garrison Hurst did in that same game? I am I positive. Think you're you know what? You know what we'll do? Here's what we'll do. You you tell me whether or not you think Matt Ryan is the is the league's MVP. And I will research whether or not Bryant Leg Bryant Young broke his leg. You need to you need to look up the, the Garrison Hurst one too. I'm telling you, I'm I think going. we got these mixed up. Um or maybe, or maybe they just both happened in the same game, which would be completely you know, folks, awful. I, I wish, um, okay. I wish that we could say that like we're gonna edit all of this out. We're not. No, we we haven't edited we haven't edited an episode in 
probably the be- outside of like the the bullcrap that we talk about at the front end. Outside of probably the better part of two and a half years. Yeah, it's just like just not we, we don't. Do. This is this is basically live to tape. <laughs> like that's this is what's happening. So you're getting to see how the sausage is made, folks. I apologize. Now let me Google. <laughs> um. So I, I mean, I think is when you look at Matt Ryan's MVP case. I mean, he certainly has a, a strong case among this kind of group. There's not really anybody that stands out. I think. Uh, you know, you have Ryan, you have Tom Brady, um, you have, you know, a cowboy, right? Like who, whatever your preferred cowboy is, uh, whether that's Ezekiel Elliott, whether that's Dak Prescott, whether that's the Cowboys offensive line, like whatever there I think is a candidate. Um, and, and so, but there's not really anybody that, that is kind of clearly above the pack. And so I think that Ryan definitely has a very good chance. He has, uh, kind of the numbers to do it. Um, I think what will really be a big deal for him is uh, being able to close the season strong. Like if they can find a way to win out and uh, which which is very reasonable. I think they have uh, the 49ers, the Panthers and the Saints are their final three games. So uh, if they can find a way to win out, uh, maybe even steal a, a first round buy there, I think that really helps Matt Ryan's candidacy because those are things that you know whether that's the right way to approach it or not those are things that voters look for right they want to see not only a a good individual season but doing that on a team that succeeds and and does really well and that usually involves you know a team that that snags one of those first round buys in the playoffs so uh, I, I think if he can kind of close the season strong here which this week is is not going to hurt those chances um, I, I think he has a very good argument. I mean, currently, uh, a, as we sit right now, he's first in yards per attempt, first in DVOA, first in DR, second in overall yards, uh, second in passer rating, third in QBR. So, I mean, he's up there in basically every single, uh, whether it's a traditional stat, whether it's uh, something a little bit more advanced, like he's he's kind of got the numbers to back that argument there. So really what he needs is is that sort of team success, I think, to kind of seal the deal. Um, and, and I really think it's going to come down to him and Brady. I mean, I think there will be some people, some of the voters out there that because Brady missed time with the suspension at the beginning of the year, that, that will kind of hold that against him, right? If you have two guys that have similar numbers and one played all 16 games and one only played 12, like it kind of makes sense to give it to the guy that played 16. But, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I, he's probably, if I had to, to kind of handicap it, I mean, I, th- I think he's probably the favorite at this point. I, I hate legacy awards. I hate, th- this is one of the reasons I hate the Pro Bowl because there are lots of people that make the Pro Bowl, not because they're actually any good this year, but because historically they've been good. Uh, I call it the Brian Erlacher rule. Brian Erlacher made like three Pro Bowls that he never should have made just because he's Brian Erlacher. Um, and, and this is what I feel about what is happening to the MVP race right now. I feel like Matt Ryan is the, 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 I think Matt Ryan is probably not, not necessarily the clear front runner, but he should be the favorite considering everything that's happening right now. Um, either him or maybe Ezekiel Elliott, um, and Tom Brady. I think those are like the three. I I don't think, I think Dak Prescott is good and i think i would love to have him as a niner but i don't think that he's an mvp candidate um and and i hate the fact that matt ryan is not getting his due because he's matt ryan because he's not in that typical elite conversation that you would typically get into 
Um, he's not, he's, that's how shitty it is. He's not even Joe Flacco elite. Like you don't even ask that question, right? You ask that question about Joe Flacco and you don't ask that question about Matt Ryan. And that sucks because Matt Ryan is damn good. And this year is, he's just, he's doing things that you, you would expect an MVP candidate to do. To put a fine point on the Bryant Young, uh, uh, Garrison Hurst discussion, Mm -hmm. Bryant Young broke his leg in San Francisco at the then 3Com Park at a Monday night game against the New York football giants. Same season, but it happened, I think, in the 98th season, but it happened in November. And the Dirty Bird game was, of course, later that year in in January. So a a little fuzzy about whether or not it was the same season, but I can confirm based on uh, uh, an article I'm reading by Michael Silver, uh, that it happened at 3Com Park in, in San Francisco and not in Atlanta. All right. So. Got me there. Yeah, I, for whatever reason, just have like this image of him. And I guess I'm just definitely mixing up uh, the, those two it's injuries okay. there. Yeah, it happens, I, You can you know? admit that you think all black people look alike. It's okay. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, come on, they're in helmets and stuff. They practically everybody looks alike. <laughs> All right. So if Matt if Matt Ryan is potentially the league's MVP and their offense is is absolutely amazing and it's humming on all cylinders, then let's flip to the other side of the ball. When did Vic Beasley become elite? Because this is a player that that his rookie year, everyone was saying, Oh, look, I can't believe they drafted that guy. That guy's not a pass rusher. Oh my god, I can't believe Atlanta drafted that guy. And this year, he is tied for the league, league in sacks. You mentioned one stat that I thought was really interesting about how he converts pressures to sack. This is, we'll call it the anti-Aaron Lynch. Because <laughs> Aaron Lynch is someone who has a lot of pressures but doesn't convert them into sacks. But Vic Beasley, on the other hand, is someone who converts 29.2% of his pressures into sacks, where the league average is 152 so he is he's almost doubling the rate of converting pressures to sacks, and he's going to be matched up against one Mr. Trent Brown as he lines up exclusively on the offense's right side. So when the hell did Vic Beasley become elite? I mean, he was he was decent during his rookie year. I mean, it was a smaller sample. He, he didn't quite play as often, um, and, and so you didn't see the same sort of raw numbers there, and he certainly wasn't converting sacks at that high of a rate. So... Uh, you know, on on one hand, you could kind of use that same stat as a uh, a prime example of why he might not continue to be that good or at least continue to put up those same sort of uh, sack numbers in the future. Um, but at least for right now, I mean, he is is somebody that's obviously playing very well um, and, and is really getting after the quarterback. I mean, the the 49ers uh, would kill to have somebody like it feels like we keep talking about for the last what, two years now almost is. These guys that, uh, you know, are just kind of consistently getting pressure but can't quite seal the deal. I mean, Eric Armstead has been in that same category. Obviously mentioned Aaron Lynch. Um, and Vic Beasley has just been completely opposite. I mean, he's really been one of the better edge rushers in, in football this year, really. So he uh, is, is certainly going to be a problem. I think, you know, again, like you mentioned, he, he plays pretty much exclusively on the offense's right side. So he's going to be going up uh, primarily against Trent Brown in this one and. Trent Brown has actually uh, allowed fewer pressures than Joe Staley has this year, which is a little odd, but um, it, he still hasn't been. It's been a little bit below average when it comes to the pass protection standpoint. Um, so it, it's it's going to be a, a situation that it will want to be monitored. Like 
they're going to want to to kind of try to add some help when possible, at least if you can kind of chip him off the edge as a back's getting out or the tight end's getting out. Like, do something to kind of help out, because I don't know that Trent Brown is really... Um, when you when you look at a player like at Beasley, too, like, this is really a style um, matchup that doesn't work in Brown's favor, because I think Brown can handle some of the... Uh, guy like the speed to power guys right because he's so powerful himself that he can kind of anchor against those guys and and do uh, a solid job there but with somebody like Beasley I mean that's pure speed off the edge he's looking to kind of dip and rip around the corner and and we saw one I I text you or not text you but I, I chatted you his sack one of his sacks against the Rams where he did one of those speed rushes around the edge and and literally sacked Jared Goff with one arm not even and then looking. in the pro- it was like a no look and sack. then and then in the and then in the process of that sack passed Jared Goff to himself behind the back like a basketball <laughs> and and then fell on top of him Jared Goff's like, kind of like it, a basketball you know maybe it was it was it was ridiculous <laughs> it was stupid i mean i i would expect all right over under on Vic Beasley's sacks 2 2 I mean, if you set it at one and a half, I'm, I'm going. I would take over. I, I mean, if that's it, why I set it at you two. You can't set it at two. That's not how. It's not fair. Um, no. <laughs> I <laughs> tell that to Vegas. I mean, I don't know. Three sacks is a lot for any game. Um, two and a half. I, sacks. I think he gets. I think he gets two. Like two seems like two is what I would choose. All right. Um, so you're about to push. Yeah. So I, all right. So here's another question. So Vic Beasley's awesome. Uh, Matt Ryan's awesome. I mean, Taylor Gabriel is fast AF. Uh, Devonta Freeman is pretty good. All that considered, you've got the offensive firepower to beat the Niners without Julio Jones. Julio Jones is hobbled a little bit. Given the fact that you're expecting to be in the playoffs and you know that he's one of your most valuable pieces, if you're the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Do you sit Julio Jones against the Niners? Yeah, absolutely. Like you don't need him to win this game. Not by a long shot. Um, yeah. I mean, I would activate him, but like not play him. Yeah. And then, and then if it ends up being close because it's one of those any given Sunday games, I'm like, all right, Julio get out there. Yeah. That might, I mean, yeah, maybe you don't need You don't, uh, have him out there and, you know, sweatpants or whatever, but, yeah, he just there's no reason for him to play in this game. I mean, you're again, you're you're trying to look long term here. And I forget what was his what injury was he dealing with? Um, I should know this, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it just makes sense. Like you you want to try to be it's it's impossible to be fully healthy as you like go into the postseason. But if you have the opportunity to kind of get some guys healthy, uh, I, I think you have to at least seriously consider those chances and. Um, while the Falcons will, of course, want to say, like, we're not going to overlook anybody and we're going to take every game seriously and one game at a time, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, they should they should really probably just sit him and go out and win this game by three scores anyway and call it a day. So I'm um, incidentally, it's a sprained toe. Julio Jones injury. Oh, yeah. Sprained Wasn't toe. it like not not turf not toe? a turf toe. OK, not turf toe, a sprained toe, which to be fair, there is a difference. Turf toe is like is the tearing of a particular ligament in your big toe. Um, whereas I guess if you can sprain a toe, you can sprain any toe. 
Um, sorry, you were talking about wide receivers and matching up against the, the 49ers. I was just imagining Taylor Gabriel against Tremaine Brock. And my my I just I just I cried a little bit. <laughs> I did. I cried because that's not gonna end well. It's not going to I mean to end nothing well. nothing about this game is going to end well. It's going to be a disaster. So, all right, so let's talk about the final prediction. Then the Vegas line has the Falcons up by fourteen. Do they? I mean, we're both thinking they're going to win. I know, but yeah. you know, are they going to clear the spread? Fourteen points, two Four, touchdowns. Fourteen is a lot of points. Uh, it, fourteen is it a lot is of points. A lot of points. Um, I mean, and we're in Atlanta. We're not at home. Yeah. Uh, which the five thirty win increased. probability is ten percent. Is that ten percent? Is that good? No. Okay. Uh, nope. Um, but there is a chance. You know what? That the win probability percent is just two percentage points higher than Vance McDonald's drop rate. So I'm trying. <laughs> oh, oh God! <laughs> when you put it that way, um, I mean, I'm trying. Oh, so looking at, at kind of some of the results here, I believe if I'm doing my very quick math correctly, um, that we've got four four games. I think that the 49ers have ultimately lost by more than 14 points. Um, three or four, one of the two. Um, yeah, I, 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 God, that's a lot of points. I think the, the so like 33% of their season, the, the, I think the smart play in general is to like, not, you know, is to take those points and, and to take the 49ers, uh, to cover that spread. But I think this one could get ugly. Um, I, I mean, I think Atlanta's going to score a lot. I think that, that you're probably talking about like a potential, we we joked about the fifty burger. I mean, I don't think that's out of the question, but I think this is probably like legitimately a forty point game for them. Um, and, and so, can the four ers keep up with that? Obviously not. Uh, so I think I think something similar to like the Saints outcome, maybe like a a forty one to twenty three type of score is that was the Saints. I think in that ballpark makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was thinking like thirty eight twenty something around yeah. there. Um, and that's clearly more than 14. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that this is, um, we didn't spend much time previewing this game because honestly, here's, here's the preview. Do you want to watch good football? Watch the Falcons, (laughs) watch what they do, watch their outside zone run game, watch the creativity and their passing concepts, watch their short passing game and how it sets up their long passing game. Watch Matt Ryan and watch accurate ball placement. Watch Vic Beasley rush the passer and dip and rip and get around the edge. Watch their swarming defense. So watch all manner of good football. Yeah. And, and none of it's going to be the 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 ball placement thing there reminded me. So I, I, uh, I was going through watching the game today, like uh, watching the coaches tape. And, uh, there were, I mean, a number of Colin Kaepernick throws that were just off the mark, but there was one that really like it. And it was just really bad in the moment as I was watching. It was, it was one at the end of the first half. Um, you know, they had an opportunity to kind of move the ball, get into field goal range. Jeremy Curley is wide open over the middle. Um, why yep. there is nobody near him. Like he is, he's probably going to easily pick up at least another 10, 15 yards after the catch, if not more, um, and, and really give them an opportunity to get into field goal position before the end of the half. And, uh, Colin Kaepernick sails just sails it over his head. And like, there were people like, Oh man, that's, that's a bad drop and stuff like that. Like, Oh my, like that throw could like, it should have been the easiest throw that he's like ever made in his life. Like 
he didn't have uh, a lot of pressure to deal with there. There was a clean pocket for him to throw out of. He kind of stepped up a little bit, was sitting pretty there. Uh, and it's just wide open and the ball's thrown so high. And like, yes, is it ca- technically catchable? Like could, could Curly get his hands on it? Sure. But ball placement is such a big deal. And there are so many throws that Kaepernick makes that even if they're in the vicinity of the receiver, they're not in a place that allows them to make the catch and then make something happen after they get the ball in their hands. And that was uh, an opportunity they re- where they really needed to take advantage of that. I mean, there was so much open space in the middle of the field there. Uh, and it was just such a bad throw. And and it's like we've gotten to the point with 49ers quarterbacks that if the ball is thrown even close to the receiver, even though the ball placement isn't anywhere near where it should be, like those are wins for this team right now. Like those are things where like, hey, that's not that bad because it wasn't thrown 10 yards over his head. Um, and, and on that terribly depressing note, you go ahead and kick the outro sad. music and, uh, and say, let's go ahead and that, that's a womp womp way to end a womp womp Wednesday. Um, but let's, yeah. that's what well, we're going to hey, we folks. got, we, we got what? Three more, three more of these, three we more. Make that's it. right. Maybe uh, we'll try to do we're get... some, some holiday theme things. I think like last year, oh, didn't God. we do, uh, Hey, you're going to be here next that's week. That's true. That's a true story. We're going to be in the same room yep. doing a podcast for the first time in a long time. So. It's uh, it's definitely going to be. I mean, hey man, we're just gonna have fun these next three weeks. Probably gonna get drunk gonna and then just sit in front of a microphone and be sad. Just FYI, yeah, so FYI basically that's, a regular. That's what's gonna happen. Yeah. So basically, a regular podcast. Yeah. Hi, uh, <laughs> I'm half tempted to do the NFL quick hits afterwards as a bonus episode because we didn't do them. I skipped over them on purpose uh, because we were running a little long. Um, and uh, you know what? There's uh, there's only four questions. We might just do them and post them as a bonus episode. But uh, if we do, check the feed, subscribe, because we won't put that up as a separate Niners Nation article. Uh, we'll probably just post it to the feed. So subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe on Stitcher, on TuneIn, uh, on any of... We're trying to get it on Google Play now, too, because I guess, you know, Androids exist. So we're, we're definitely trying to get them on as many services as humanly possible so that you can listen and you can enjoy... A bunch of drunk idiots musing about the 49ers' sadness, really. Uh, God, yeah, Jesus. somebody mentioned to us, uh, what, today, I think, that uh, I should do a Warriors podcast, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that would have been a better course of action right now. Uh, yeah, as, and, as and so I, my, my reply was pretty much like, yeah, David knows a lot about basketball. He'd be great at it. <laughs> I would probably make just Draymond Dong jokes, so... There's a we'd sphere for that, ex- you know. There's a we'd be par for the course. That's pretty much what we do now. <laughs> so, if you do like the show, if you do subscribe, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess at this point, what do we got left? Oh, the call to action. Oh yeah, yeah Doctor yeah. Jork. Doctor Jork. Doctor Jork for sure. Absolutely. Definitely yep. Doctor Jork. I think uh, that's dr dot space. You can't, you, can't, you can't do special characters in a hashtag. It's just got to be D-R- oh, son of a motherless goat. J-O-R-K. Dr. Jordan. Oh, yeah, I get that. All right, I guess it's just D-R-J-O-R-K. <laughs> I like to be grammatically correct, all right? <laughs> God damn it, Donald. All right, well, uh, on that note, hit us up with that hashtag. If you've gotten to this part of the episode, um, good on you because you're a trooper. Uh, thanks again for listening, uh, and as always, go Niners.
Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.